So I asked the question of what's the difference between a hero and a villain. I'm a fan of the superheroes. I'm a fan of the superhero stories. When I was a kid, it was always the... Um, the Friends, you know, the Super Friends show. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember the Super Friends cartoon that would be on Saturday morning, but it was the Hall of Justice and Batman and Spider-Man and Superman, and it was DC and it was Marvel. I never knew there was a thing that was separating DC and Marvel when I was a kid because they were all in the Hall of Justice cartoon, and I just thought they were all together on this thing. I mean, there were, there were people who shouldn't have been there, like... Aquaman, I can talk to fish, and that's going to solve the world's problems. I don't ever really understand what Aquaman's really all. But anyway, so the thing that I learned as a child is this. Heroes wear bright colors. Villains wear dark colors. Heroes are handsome or pretty. Villains are ugly. Heroes have soft voices or strong voices, but villains have whiny voices or scratchy voices. Heroes want to save the world for mostly the United States, and villains want to take over the world and have power and control. And I've grown up since the days I watched those cartoons. Well, let me change it. The movies have grown up. The movies have grown up. And now we no longer have such a strong dividing line between heroes and villains. I don't know if you've seen the Batman movies. Not not the Michael Keaton and, you know, those ones from the 90s that were just weird. But I'm talking about like the dark ones recently. If you've seen the dark Batman movies, all of them are trying to deal with the question of is Batman a hero or is he a villain? Every one of them is dealing with this. And Batman himself is trying to deal with the issue in the, in the movie Batman Begins. He's trying to decide whether his mentor, a guy named Ra's al Ghul, is good for the world or bad for the world. Whether his mentor is a hero or a villain. And those are the themes that have shown up time and time again. If you've seen, I, I mean, Joe referred to the Avengers movies, and so I'm glad that I don't have to be the first reference to it, because if you've seen any of them, you know from some of those movies, actually most of the last five or ten movies, this dilemma shows up repeatedly. In fact, there's this one movie called Civil War, where Iron Man and um, Captain America are like fighting against each other, primarily because neither one of them can decide what it means to be a hero. Neither one of them can decide what it means to be a villain. And so they fight against each other. So I'm going to offer to you my answer for the difference between a hero and a villain. And you don't have to accept it because my answer defining hero and villain this way is not biblical. But what we will talk about today shows the part of it that is biblical, and I think it will really make a difference in our lives. Here's my definition. The difference between a hero and a villain is what guidance they follow. I think the one true thing that you can see in almost all hero versus villain stories is that heroes have some measure of authority or guidance that is outside themselves. For those in the American subculture, the heroes are the defenders of freedom and American democracy. And the villains are the ones who are like Hitler trying to take over the world or 
pinky in the brain trying to take over the world. Those are the villains. But here's the thing. It's not so much like that in real life. There aren't a whole lot of villains who are just out for power and nothing else. The thing that I have learned in my 40-some years of life is that the bad people think they're doing good. The bad people think they're doing something good, something right, something proper. So it's not a question of whether the person is intrinsically evil. It's a question of whether that person is following evil guidance or not. Now, it is true that a lot of villains are villains because the only guidance they follow is their own. And a lot of heroes are heroes because the only guidance they choose to follow is the society around them or the guidance of some moral code or something. But today, what I want to do is I want to show you a passage in the book of Judges where we see a guy who's supposed to be a hero, who I want to call a villain, but it's very hard to draw that fine line. So I'm just going to tell you his story and hopefully you'll have to make a, you'll have to make a decision on whether or not you think he's a hero or a villain. Anyway, jump on into it with me. We're going to start in Judges chapter 10. And just to remind you as you're flipping there, uh, where we've been so far is we've found a number of different guys, a number of different judges, and a couple women who have stepped up to be leaders of the nation of Israel because the leaders, because the people of Israel always follow the same pattern. They ignore God. God allows an oppressor to come in. They cry out to God. God then brings a savior called a judge, and that person comes and he rescues them from their oppressors, and then they have a time of peace until they start all over again and reject. God. That's the pattern that's been repeating over and over and over again. And so today we pick it up in chapter 10 and we see the pattern repeat. But before we see the pattern repeat, we get a few bright spots. We call them minor judges. They're minor because they just get a few verses, but they're actually good because there's nothing bad that can be said about them because it's just so small. Anyway, chapter 10, verse 1, it says, after the time of Abimelech, a man of Issachar named Tola, son of Pua, the son of Dodo, which I think is funny, and any junior higher should really appreciate a guy whose dad's name is Dodo. I think that's just amazing. But anyway, keep going. He rose to save Israel. He lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. He led Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shamir. Now, there's one thing I just need to highlight for you. We talked about this last week. We talked about it the week before. There's a lot of city names and a lot of tribal names that are mentioned in the book of Judges, and you need to try to keep them all in line. And so I'm just going to, when I come across a, a name that is an Israelite name, the people of God, I'm going to try to make sure I identify that as an Israelite name. And when it's an enemy name, I'm going to try to identify that clearly as an enemy name. Those are the people who didn't worship God those are the people who were already in the land that God had said needed to be pushed out of the land and that kind of stuff. And, and I've spent a lot of time on some of those things before. But the one thing you need to realize is that when you hear the word Ephraim and you hear the word Gilead and you hear the word Manasseh, what you are hearing is the names of brothers. Uh, so Ephraim and Manasseh were brothers, the sons of Joseph. 
the son of Jacob, who led them all to success in Egypt. And then eventually, after he died, they ended up in slavery in Egypt. But before they were in slavery, they were successful in Egypt. And it was all because of Joshua. It was all because of Joseph, I mean. And so Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. These guys are brothers. And so descended through the line, you now have tribes named Ephraim and Manasseh. And they are for some reason, the ones that give us the most trouble in the book of Judges. Tola shows up, and he's in Ephraim, and he brings Israel peace. Look at the next one. He was followed by Jer of Gilead. So Gilead is a city in Manasseh, a brotherhood city to the nation or the region of Ephraim. So these are siblings you can think of. He was followed by Jer of Gilead, who led Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. They controlled 30 towns in Gilead, which to this day are called Havath Jer. When Jer died, he was buried in Kamon. So anyway, you've got these two guys quick mention, I'm not going to get into much more detail, except just to remind you that Ephraim and Gilead are like sibling regions of the nation. They're close to each other and all that stuff. We pick up the meat of the story in verse 6. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And so these people are now worshiping a whole bunch of foreign gods, not just a few of them, all of the gods of the nations around them. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. I love what God does next. Check this out. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble." Um, I interpret this as my, like my, my paraphrase of what God just did, is he did this. You see this? This is the world's tiniest violin, and I'm playing it for you. Because God basically says, you're up a creek. I've saved you enough. I'm done. I'm over it. I'm not even going to sympathize with you whatsoever. Go and cry out to some other God. So look what they do. 15, but the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. There's this picture in the Bible that we always have to keep. It's the picture of a God who desperately wants relationship with his people. A God who is wrathful, a God who is wounded by the actions of his people. 
A God who feels deeply, but a God whose compassion and mercy and grace always wins. A God who, when you cry out to him, he might say, oh, I don't want to do anything, but you cry out to him and say, you're all I've got. And his mercies are new. And his grace is new. His forgiveness is new. And so, when the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. There are two things going on here, real briefly. So they cried out to God, and then in faith, they trust that God is going to answer them. Notice God hasn't provided a savior yet. God hasn't provided an answer to them yet. What they do is they cried out to God. They heard God say, sorry, not going to help. They cried out to God again and said, no, we really mean it. We're going to get rid of all these other gods. God has compassion on them. We don't know if they know about God's compassion. We don't know if they know about God's mercy towards them. What we do know is they decide to go to battle without having a leader. And this raises two things for us. One, it raises their faith. It raises our awareness of their faith. They had enough faith to go after their enemy without having a clear answer from God or a clear leader in place. But there's a second lesson that we need to learn, and this is the lesson I gave you the first week in Judges, and it's the lesson that I'm going to continue to give you because it's the lesson of the book of Judges. It's the last verse in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21 verse 25 says this, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Here, the people at the end of this chapter, they have gathered together in battle, but they still have no leader. And the book of Judges is trying to repeatedly emphasize this. These are people who were supposed to be heroic, but they need a hero now. These are people who have no leader. What's going to happen next? And so here we are. They're ready for battle, but they don't have a leader. They say, who's going to lead us? Well, the next chapter we find out. So here we go. And we find that their leader is going to be a guy named Jeff. Sorry, Jephthah. Jephthah is his name. Uh, Verse 1, chapter 11. It says this, Jephthah the Gileadite. Now remember, Gilead is like the neighboring area to Ephraim. Gileadite, he was a mighty warrior. Pause. How does anyone know he's a mighty warrior? For 18 years they've been oppressed by these enemies right? How does anybody know he's a mighty warrior? We get a tiny little bit of his backstory here. Here it is. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you're the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, or Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. How do people know he's a great warrior? Because he's been leading a gang for a while. Not a gang of good people. A gang of scoundrels, it says. You don't become a scoundrel by looking like a scoundrel. You don't become a scoundrel by saying you're a scoundrel. You, you become a scoundrel by doing scoundrel things. These people, could I say it, are villains. And Jephthah is leading them. 
And somehow his exploits with these guys are well enough known that people know he is a great, mighty warrior. Keep going, verse 4. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The way I paraphrase that is Gilead, uh, Jephthah is looking at them and he's saying, you know what this is? This is the world's tiniest violin and I'm playing it for you. Aww. In other words, he says the same thing to them that God said to them. The writer of this story really wants us to realize that the people of Israel haven't been loyal to any leader. The people of, lo- of Israel haven't followed any leader. And so now they're coming at Jephthah, and Jephthah gives them the same response that God had given them earlier, and so they do roughly the same thing again. They plead with him. They say, verse 8, The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we're turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. If you help us, we'll make you in charge. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them, and he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Okay, so now he's made his decision. You promised I would really be your leader, and so now I'm going to be your leader. And we get this, this heightened sense of excitement. Is Jephthah going to be a godlike leader for them? Is he going to be a noble leader? His, his past was villainous with these scoundrels, but maybe he's going to be a noble leader right now. And it starts off pretty well. It says this, verse 12, Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, what do you have against me that you've attacked my country? In other words, he's pursuing diplomacy. Come on, let's, let's deal with this thing. What's your problem with us? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, when Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king saying, the Ammonite king says, I've got a region of land that you guys took from me. As you're going to see in just a couple minutes, that was 300 years ago. So the Ammonite king is complaining about something that happened 300 years before. And Jephthah is about to give him a history lesson, which is cool because that means that Jephthah knows his history. And if Jephthah knows his history, that means he knows God's word somewhat because that's where the history is recorded. Jephthah must know about the book of Joshua. He must know about the book of Numbers. He must know about the book of Exodus. He must know these things because he knows his history. And so here we go. Let's see what he says about this. Verse 14, he sent back messengers to the Amnite king saying, this is what Jephthah says, Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent messengers. They also sent to the king of Moab and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the wilderness, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. They says, we didn't invade any of those people. We went around them all. Then he says, keep going, verse 19, then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, 
king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to them, let us pass through your country to our own place. They would say, I want to go through your country to the promised land. Your land isn't the promised land. We're going through your land to our promised land. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his troops and encamped at Jehaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and his whole army into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing it all capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. He says, it's because of that battle that we gained this land. Verse 23, now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right do you have to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Chemosh, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord, our God, has given us, we will possess. Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with him? For 300 years Israel occupied Heshbon. Aroer, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I've not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Amorites. I read the whole thing because of a couple things. One, You need to remember that Jephthah knows his history. That will come to play in just a little bit. He knows his history. The other thing you need to know is that Jephthah's smart. he's, He's bright. He understands that it's because of the history that he has a right to this land. There's another thing. He says God gave us this land, so therefore it's our land. But he also does something weird. He says to these people, Will you not take the land your God gives you? We will take the land our God gives us. And the only weird part about that is that it's almost as if Jephthah is saying, your God is just as valid as our God. If Chemosh gives you land, take it. And if Yahweh gives us land, we'll take it. But by equating the two of them, it makes me feel just a little bit unsettled. As if he's saying... Chemosh is a good enough God. I would have preferred he said something like this. Your God, Chemosh, is nothing. But if God, the Lord, Yahweh, hasn't given us your land, we're not going to claim your land. But instead, he weighs the two of them on a balance as if they are equal. It's just enough unsettling to me that it makes me doubt whether or not Jephthah's entirely all that way turned around to be a good guy. Let's see what happens next. Verse 28, the king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Verse 29, then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. Oh, this has happened a couple times in the book of Judges. It happened on Othniel, it happened on Gideon. When the spirit shows up, that's when you become a hero. When God's presence is with you, that's when you become a hero. And we're just ready and excited for something great to happen here. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. This, 
That's weird, okay? Um, I'm going to give you the, the quick answer first of what makes this situation weird. We just found out the Spirit came on him, right? The Spirit came on him. And then he goes marching out kind of victoriously. But then, then he, he says, it says he made a vow. And, and this, is, this is the weird part, okay? Because vows were made in the Old Testament when either you were trying to get God to do something for you or when you were thanking God for something he had already done. It's clear that this vow is one of the former. He's trying to get God to do something for him. He says, if you will give this enemy into my hands. But what's weird is that God's spirit is on him. He doesn't need to manipulate God for anything more or anything else because God's spirit is literally with him. So the Spirit of God is on him and he makes a vow. Those two things should not fit together. Those two things should not fit together because if the Spirit is on you, you don't need to coerce God to do anything. Your job, if the Spirit is on you, is just to walk with him, just to be with him. It's not to coerce him into something new because he's already with you. If he made a vow, it should have been a vow of thanks, a vow, God, thank you for strengthening me. And when I get the opportunity next, I will sacrifice to you. But it's more than just an unfortunate or foolish vow. I'm going to show you in just a moment that it was a fully evil vow. Let me show you what happens next in this story. Verse 22 said, Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. Exactly what he asked for. Verse 33, he devastated 20 towns from Aroer to the vicinity of Minith as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. Ammon is their enemy in this case. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? And already, you remember the vow. You're like, oh my goodness, what is going on here? The girl comes out first. But just keep reading. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down. I am devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. It's one thing for us to say his vow was unnecessary or unwise or foolish. But my claim to you is that his vow was evil. I'm going to show you just a few reasons why we know that. The first reason the vow is evil is that he is going to sacrifice a human to manipulate God. Now, how do we know he's planning to sacrifice a human? Right? Because his vow was, whatever comes out the door of my house to meet me, I will sacrifice it. And because you're an American who speaks English, you know the difference. And you read the word whatever and it, and you immediately think non-person. There's just one problem. In Hebrew, there's no difference between the word whatever and whoever. In Hebrew, there's no difference between the word it and the word he or she. And so when he says the words that come out of his mouth, he says, who or whatever comes out of my house, 
Secondarily, we also know that he is planning to kill a human because back then they didn't have dogs and no other animals. They didn't have dogs like pets and no other animals come out to meet you. And even back then, the animal wouldn't be inside the house coming out of the house to meet him. Let's just think logically about this. It's not going to be an animal. It's not going to be an it because it's meeting. He knows it's a human. When he makes the vow, he knows it's a human. And he's doing it to try to manipulate God. God, would you give me this enemy? And I will give you someone who lives in my house. There's a second reason it's evil. He's going to sacrifice someone else, sacrifice someone else to save himself. Right? Because if he does the sacrifice, he's alive. I did this kind of vow when I was a kid. Um, At night, I would pray. And I was terrified every night when I went to sleep that I wasn't going to wake up in the morning. Because to me, sleep felt like death. And I was always afraid that it was going to be death and that I would never wake up in the morning. And so as a child, I er I early learned how to manipulate God in my prayers. I would say this. I would say, God, give me a good night's rest tonight so that... I can serve you tomorrow, or something along those lines, so that I can be ready for tomorrow. And in my mind, I kid you not, in my mind, I was thinking to myself, the only way God can answer this is if he keeps me alive. You know, and I thought that maybe by promising to serve God the next day, he would keep me alive during the night. And that's what Jephthah is doing here. He says, God, if you give the enemy into my hands, I will sacrifice someone who lives in my house. In other words, I'm going to kill someone else, Scott, if you spare me. But it gets worse. Number three, we realize something very, very terrible in this story. Did you notice the detail? The daughter comes out. The writer tells us she was an only child. Not an only daughter, an only child. Aside from her, there were no sons, no daughters. So a guy who's a mighty warrior, a guy who's leading a nation, who's in his house? His daughter. Maybe his wife if she's still alive. And servants. I contend that Jephthah had someone in mind that he was planning to kill. Maybe not a particular person, maybe not a name. But I bet he thought, when I ride home in victory, one of my servants is going to come out here like they usually do. They're going to come up to me and they're going to congratulate me on my victory. They're going to bring me a, a cloak or something to put on so that I can come into my house with dignity. You know, one of my servants is going to be the first person out of the house. He might know that person's name, he might not, but he knows it's a servant and he doesn't care. He said, I'm going to kill him. God, whichever one of my servants, I'm going to kill that servant if you keep me alive. And then, just to put icing on the cake, at the end when he sees his daughter, did you hear what he said? He said, I've made a vow to God that I can't break. What would happen if he breaks his vow? If he breaks his vow, God's going to be mad, right? That's what he's thinking. And if God is going to be mad at me because I didn't keep my vow, then it's God's fault that I'm killing you. He blames God. 
He blames God for his own foolishness. He blames God for his own stuff. He blames God for the fact that he is about to kill his only child, kill his daughter. Oh, and there's one more thing. The last piece of this that makes it totally evil is just simply that he had rejected what God actually said. We know this guy knows his history, right? We know he knows his history. He's, he's talked about the stuff from Numbers. He's talked about the stuff from Joshua. He knows these things. And if he knows these things, he might know some of the other words that God spoke. Let me just show you a few of them. Let's look at Deuteronomy, shall we? Deuteronomy, the end of the book, chapter 31, says this. The Lord himself goes before you, and he will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. If he's leading the people of Israel, he doesn't need to manipulate God. He doesn't need to make a vow. He doesn't need to get, say, God, if you would be with me, then, you know, I'm going to do these great things for you. He doesn't have to do that because God already promised, I'm with you. You don't have to manipulate God to be with you when he's already promised to be with you. That's like looking at the person that you've married and say to them 15 years later, you know what? I just really don't trust that you're going to stay with me. Can I tie you to the car? That's looking at a person who has already expressed their loyalty, already expressed their love, and you just slap him in the face saying, I don't trust you. God has promised to be with him, and he's making some sort of vow. That's not all. Let's keep going, because in Deuteronomy it also says this. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, the, the way of the other people in the other nations, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. Pay attention, hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fires as sacrifices to their gods. God says through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 12, something I hate is when a father or mother kills their child. God hates that. He says, I hate it when someone uses their child to gain spiritual benefit. Keep going. Look at this next one from Leviticus 27. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if anyone makes a special vow, did you know there's a lot of laws about vows? A special vow to dedicate a person to the Lord. Did you know you could make a vow to dedicate a person to the Lord by giving the equivalent value? And then it actually tells us how to value people. Set the value of a male between the ages of 20 and 60 at 50 shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel. And then it goes on. It's basically a life insurance thing. It says, how much is a life worth at its various ages? And if you have promised God by vow a person, what you need to do is convert the person's value into silver, give the silver to God, and you've kept your vow. There's one more. Look at this next one. Oh, I, there was another one in Deuteronomy. Do we not have that one? In Leviticus. I'll just tell you what it was. So in Leviticus, there's this other one where it says in chapter 27, it says, if you have made a vow to give to God something that can't be sacrificed, convert that thing into money and give the money. In other words, the bottom line to these things is that God has literally given Jephthah his out, his answer. 
He's given him the rules and regulations for how vows work. And Jephthah has nothing to worry about. He should not kill his daughter. He shouldn't have made the vow in the first place. That was stupid. It was foolish. But now that he's seen his daughter come out, he still shouldn't keep the vow. Because God had already given instructions for what you do in this case. But Jephthah ignores it. And the sad thing is, his daughter doesn't know these rules. She only knows what she's learned about God from her dad. And once again, the only honorable person in the story is a woman. Because see what she says to her dad. I'll put it up here. My father, she replied, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request, she said. She says, give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Not to commemorate Jephthah, to commemorate the daughter. If she had known what God had said, maybe she wouldn't have been so submissive to this insanely evil vow. But what you see in her is a submissive, humble heart that says, if that's what God wants, I want to pause for just a moment. I told you the story of Judges, the book of Judges is just a a story of human beings going down and down and down and how it just gets worse and worse and worse the more you read. This is the second worst judge. I already told you that. It gets worse. And then after the judges are done, it gets even worse. But just to remind you, the last verse of the book of Judges is the point. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. You can't get around this truth. It's something we have to grasp permanently. All of the evil that we see in the book of Judges made perfect sense to the people doing it. Every bit of evil that we see in the book of Judges made perfect sense to the person doing it. I'll extend it. All of the evil we see in the world makes perfect sense to the person doing it. Just because something makes sense to you has no bearing on whether or not it is true or right or good or honorable or heroic. They had no king. They did what was right in their own eyes and so Jephthah murders his daughter. They had no king. They did what was right in their own eyes. And so Abimelech 
claims to be king. And so Gideon makes an idol. And it will just get worse from here. My contention to you is that knowing the right thing in your heart is not good enough. Thinking you have the right angle on a perspective is not good enough. Having your mind clear about an issue is not good enough. Because all of the evil we see in the world is done by people for whom it makes perfect sense. Because they had forgotten God's word to them. Jephthah does what he does because he forgot God's word. He remembered the history. He just forgot God's word. And in every one of these aspects of this story, it's because he had forgotten God's word that he does what makes sense to him. I'm going to finish it up by reading you the first seven verses of chapter 12. It's not good. It says this, The Ephraimite forces were called out, and they crossed over to Zaphon. They said to Jephthah, Why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. (laughs) Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites, and although I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands, not really, and crossed over to fight the Ammonites. And the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now why have you come up today to fight me? Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim, his brothers, The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If he replied, no, they said, all right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. Forty-two thousand Ephraimites were killed at that time. What separates a hero from a villain? Jephthah led Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. And I read that last line just because of one tiny other little detail. I kind of told you this at the beginning, but it's important enough just to mention Jephthah led Israel for um, how many years? Six? And then he died? When he started leading Israel, he had how many children? One? He had been a renegade for a while, earned a good reputation as a mighty warrior. My assumption, it's not in the text, my assumption is he's a pretty young guy. He's a pretty young guy when he starts this adventure. And he only lives six more years? The minor judges that we read at the beginning of the chapter, they lived 18 years. They lived much longer than that. I get a picture in this last little verse here that God gave some ultimate judgment on Jephthah. You're only going to live six years. You're only going to reign six years. And then I'm done with you. We'll move on. But of course, the text doesn't actually say that. That's just kind of my gut interpretation of it. What I do want to end with, though, is this. There's a principle we've seen a number of times in Judges that is the big idea of the book. It goes like this. When I'm with God, I'm a hero. You, yes, you, 
When you're with God, when God is with you and you're with God, you are a hero already. But number two, when I'm without God, I'm a villain. God was with Jephthah. Jephthah just wasn't with him back. God had sent his spirit to be with him, but Jephthah just wasn't willing to reciprocate. And when I'm with God, I'm a hero, but when I'm without God, when I wander away from him, then it's not just me going back to normal. It's me becoming a villain. Because at any moment in time, at any moment, I could do the villainous thing and be completely ignorant of it. When I'm with God, I'm a hero. When I'm without God, I'm a villain. No matter what I think. It's true, no matter what I think. So much of us, so much of our lives, especially now in the world of social media, so much of our lives boils down to this is what I think. And because it is what I think, it is my right to say it, it is my responsibility to say it, and because it is what I think, therefore it must be right. Because I'm, of course, right. And yet, it is the people who think they're right who are the villains. It is the people who think God is right who are the heroes. And there's a very big difference between thinking I'm right and thinking God is right. So I implore you, people, don't be a Jephthah. And, and, don't trust a Jephthah. If you know a Jephthah, if you see a person, if you see a person who is like one of these people who they, they look strong, they're accomplishing the things that you asked them to do, you know, they, everything about them seems to be, you know, they're, they're not that great of a person. They're not really aware of God's law. They're not really interested in following God's law or looking like God or acting like God. But you know what? They're at least getting it done. And if you know someone who's just getting it done, they might be a Jephthah. Don't trust them. But if you know a person who says, listen, I'm nothing if it weren't for God. And I'm not going to do anything unless it's something God tells me I need to do. If you know a person who is in subservience to God's word, that just might be a hero. But I'll leave it with this. When we come face to face with the book of Judges, we can say that these characters in the story have these major flaws. But the job of the book of Judges is to remind us that so do we. And with God, I'm a hero. Without God, I'm a villain. And it's true no matter what I think. I hope that you can be a person who's not like Jephthah. And I hope that you can be a person who can see through the other people who are like Jephthah. And that maybe us, we, can be people who are more like Jesus instead. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.